If you're here this morning and you would say that I am a Christian, that is to say I am a follower of Jesus. It is to say I am one who strives by God's grace with the help of the community of faith in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power seen by God the Father who raised him from the dead to obey and to follow him. And if that's the case, I would ask you a question about your personal relationship with Jesus. But before I launch in, you may be here this morning and you may have heard talk of religion. You may have heard of talk of church. You may have gone through motions from a a variety of traditions even. But to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ may be a new concept to you. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't make you... Uh, mean that you haven't been paying attention because that's what a lot of people out there preach, to be honest with you. But to be a Christian is to have a right relationship with God, to, to go from being separated from God to being made right with God, not through any work of your own. We kind of casually and even sometimes jokingly, though it is no joke, say that here that the only thing I've contributed to my salvation is my sin. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus gave himself on Calvary to die in my place and in your place if you believe on him for your salvation. And so to have a personal relationship with Jesus, with God is to be, be, be once an enemy of God, to, be, to be repent of your sin, capital S, lordship of your life. I want to be the king on the throne of my own heart. And because of the work that Jesus did in his perfect life, willing sacrificial death and a resurrection from the grave, those who turn from self to follow Christ because of Christ are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. So I just want to kind of lay that groundwork right up, very much right out of the gates this morning. But what would, I, what would you say if I told you that your personal relationship with Jesus is for you and others? Well, that might not throw you off too much. You might agree with that. You might not have a tough time agreeing with that. But what if I went a step further and I said, uh, I told you that the decisions that you make about your Christian life are far less personal than you believe they are. They're far less something that affect you and only you than you think they are. The latter is true, right? First and foremost, your salvation brings glory to God, which is why every one of us on this earth earth exists. Second, the way that you live as a Christian affects not only yourself, but it affects many others, even generations. The decisions made in this room over many years, but even today, have an impact on the lives of others. Today... In the weeks to come, and in the generations to come. First Peter, who's an apostle, Peter's an apostle, he's writing, he's writing to Christians who are experiencing trials. And these trials are intended by God as a as a test of the genuineness of their faith. To prove its genuineness, right? And so rather than 
rather than, hear this, hear this, rather than coddle them, you know, oh, I know it's hard living as a Christian. I know it's hard. He's not patting their head here. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, but he's not coddling them. He comforts them, not only with gentle words, but his comfort is a very direct comfort. His comfort is purposeful. His comfort says, let me comfort you in the way you need to be comforted. Have you ever uh, been trying to encourage someone through a challenge? Maybe you have a kid or a grandchild who's playing a football game or, or they're running in a cross-country race and you position yourself toward the end because it's easy to cheer for somebody at the beginning, but it's when they're nearing the end or when they're in the difficult stride that they need the encouragement that says, right? We don't come alongside and say, oh, I know it's hard and I know you're tired. Just hang in there. No, we say, come on, keep on. You've only got a mile left. You've only got, depending on what you're running. That's what it'd be for me. (laughs) You only have nine steps left. You can do it. There's a certain tone you take when you really need to encourage someone to exhort them to make it to the end. You come and you say, keep looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. He's done the work for you. He will sustain you. Keep looking to him. Get connected with those who will help you run the race well. There's a certain tone. There's a certain edge to your tone of voice, to your efforts and how you come alongside and encourage someone in those efforts. And that is what uh, Peter does. He's encouraging them toward a particular goal, to faithfulness when facing hardship and persecution. In other words, persecution's the norm. We've been very blessed to live in a nation where persecution isn't the norm. That is changing, brothers and sisters. That is changing. Mark it down. Persecution is the norm, not the exception, and you should be prepared to stand strong by God's empowering grace. And so in doing this, he calls them to unity as a church body. He said, be unified with one another. Division helps no one. Be unified in the message, be unified in your encouragement, and be uh, growing in your spiritual maturity. And in doing this, he's reminding them that when they suffer for living as people committed to God ways, which are very different from the world in every way, they will face haters. They will face persecution from the world, but the world cannot ultimately, the world cannot eternally harm them. They may be able to harm you in this world. They might be able to hurt your feelings. They might even be able to kill you, but they cannot steal your soul because God has guarded you for eternal security. They cannot take your soul. I want you to listen to these uh, 11, 12 verses as we read to kind of get the whole context here. He's saying in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, he says, now who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, in other words, don't be a jerk in the name of Jesus and be like, oh, I'm suffering. Well, stop being a jerk. Be kind, be loving in your Christianity. Then if you suffer for for living righteously, then let's talk. Suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, and you'll be slandered, we're seeing it in our community even now, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They may not be put to shame on this earth, but friends, in eternity, they will be put to shame. If they don't first, which we pray, if they don't first come to Christ through repentance and faith. That's always what we strive for, always what we pray for. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Peter is preparing believers for suffering. Here, persecution. And he's exhorting them to stand firm in the true grace of God. We see that in chapter 5, verse 12, through which God called them out of darkness and into marvelous light in their salvation. Here's our main idea for this morning. Noah's faith and trust in God was made visible or was seen by his construction of the ark over many years and entering the ark. When God says, go, and you say, okay, I'll go, that is not a demonstration of your faith. Do you know what a demonstration of your faith is? You stand up and you walk. Okay, Lord, I'll go one day. No, God says go. Okay, let's go. No, I want you to build an ark. Let's get to building. Never done this before. Where's the instructions? I'll tell you. Similarly, the New Testament believers' faith is seen through their willingness to enter baptismal waters as they profess their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Now if, you're, now, if you're one who says, we don't believe in works salvation, amen. We don't believe in works salvation. We don't believe that these waters are magical. I mean, they are very literally come from uh, whatever we have connected to our building here that brings water in. They very much need to be cleaned and filtered and the pH set. Thank you, Steels, by the way, for helping us out in that. Uh, so there's nothing... Hear what I'm saying, brothers. There's nothing holy about this water, but these are special waters in that they represent this very significant, important, obedient step of faith that God calls his children to. Peter makes a very strong statement here that we are at times quite uncomfortable with. Baptism, which corresponds to Noah and the ark, now saves you. Whoa, I didn't think baptism saved. What he's... What he's getting at is that baptism pictures the reality that we are put to death in the flesh, point one, and being made alive in the spirit. It pictures that reality. And in New Testament times, when we read in the biblical language, they believed and were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. Kind of referred to as like the one-two punch of repentance and faith. They believed and they followed in baptism. Somebody was preaching the gospel in the river. They believed and they were baptized. They walked into the river. They didn't talk about one day being baptized. Baptism was the profession of faith that was parallel with their verbal profession of faith. Sometimes I think we have gotten so comfortable with a prayer of salvation that we may have, may have unknowingly, unintentionally sort of replaced the primacy of a prayer with the waters of baptism and demoted the priority of baptism to something that is optional, but we're not legalistic, so we don't want to force it. 
Peter says, baptism now saves you. Why? Because it is a demonstration of your faith. So similar to Jesus who suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, only Christians who are turning to Christ in faith can show this in their baptism. Right? If you were baptized as a child, and I know that we have guests here today and some that come here today from other traditions. And so I just want to tell you, I'm going to preach the word of God as I understand it. I pray that it's a blessing to you. Maybe it'll be a challenge to you. Maybe it'll ask you to reconsider some things, but that's, that's to you. But I mean, no unkindness in any of this, but we're going to be pretty direct here. And that is this parents cannot make a salvific decision for their children and have that confirmed through something like infant baptism. We do something kind of similar where parents come forward and they say, I, we want to make a dedication. Uh, we want to dedicate our child, but it's really, it's really a parent-child dedication. It's what we refer to it as, where parents come forward and they say, we want to commit to the faith and we want to parent our children to follow Jesus. We know we need the church's help in this, so we're bringing them forward to, to, uh, to not to present them to the Lord in salvation, but to say we are presenting ourselves and our children to the Lord and we want to follow Christ's church. We need you to help us in that. That's how we see that scripturally holding true. And so in the same way that parents can't make that decision for their children, if, if you have grown up and said, uh, well, my, my parents and my grandparents are Christians. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian because your parents can't decide that for you. No one gets into the heaven on anyone's coattails except for Jesus. Jesus alone through his perfect life sacrificial death and resurrection. Each person needs to believe and confess their own under, through their own understanding and their ability. Now, verses 19 and 20 give us uh, some interesting language here when it speaks of God's patience, waiting in the days of Noah and Christ preaching to the spirits in prison because they didn't obey the warnings in Noah's day. We're going through a series in Genesis, so if you've been with us for several weeks, you've heard me talk about that. Um, so I'm not able to address this fully today, but I just want to say for time's sake that I understand this to mean that after Christ's death on the cross, he went and he preached victory over evil spirits or angels which were present in Noah's day. I preached this text, uh, I think in March of 2018. So if you want to hear more on that, you can go find that message there. We can connect sometime and talk more about that. Second point is that baptism... Baptism is the profession of faith or the faith response that God calls for. If you look by example throughout the New Testament, you see this principle of baptism, I'm sorry, belief and be, believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized. In the Great Commission, God, uh, Jesus our Lord said, uh, go into the, all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all, or making disciples, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. So here, Peter calls baptism an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Some of your translations might say a pledge to God. And I'll tell you, you could take either word and you would be biblically faithful, uh, and, and that would be okay. Uh, there are two ways we can see it. One is a, an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Not saying that baptism... Uh, is the thing that actually does the cleansing of your conscience, but it's the faith that steps out in baptism. It's the faith that says, I've heard of this Jesus 
pretty clear to me that I'm a sinner and I want to turn from my being the king of my own heart and I want to follow Jesus today. Let me step into the waters and be baptized. That's the essence we see in the New Testament. You might say that it's a, a pledge flowing from a good conscience. Uh, hundreds of pages have been written on this. The word used for the word for pledge, the word that's used for appeal in this passage and pledge, according to some translations, the word pledge didn't actually come in uh, to meaning until the second century. This was written in mid first century, in the mid sixties, I believe. And so I think appeal is, uh, is the right translation, but it would mean either an appeal to God for a clean conscience or a pledge to God flowing from a clean conscience or flowing from a good conscience. It's not a pledge in the sense of saying, I pledge that I'm going to do this. No, we're saying I've been saved and I'm pledging to follow him. I believe and I'm pledging to follow him, flowing from the good conscience that the Lord has given me. However you slice it, it doesn't change the ultimate meaning of this. Baptism is the act that is inextricably linked to one's verbal profession of repentance and faith. So in actuality, if we're to put this on some sort of a linear kind of timeline, it may be that somebody is saved. They're saved in a, in a, in a punctiliar, in a moment of time, they're saved and then they're baptized. Or maybe they're saved and, you know, a week later after they had a conversation with the pastor, they believe and, and then they're baptized. We have at times gone through uh, lengthier classes and things like that. But at the earliest opportunity, under the authority of the local church, a person who believes is baptized. Baptism makes faith visible in a similar way to how building an ark and how walking into an ark made Noah's faith and trust in God visible. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right? Well, baptism is very closely linked with and very visibly pictures the confession of the mouth. We, we have become, uh, I, I fear, and I think I've been a part of this in some ways, we've become casual but insistent on our affirmation of a brother or sister's faith. Almost to the degree that the, the, the impetus on that individual to respond in obedient faith to be baptized is lost. I'm afraid that we've lost some of that. I fear that we've lost some of that. We want to be as tightly linked to the New Testament as we can. Right? If, uh, Philip is, is uh, talking with a, an Ethiopian eunuch, or actually an Ethiopian eunuch is, is reading the scriptures. He's reading a portion of Isaiah and he's kind of cruising along in his chariot and there's a group, you know, you never travel by yourself in a chariot. And so he's moving along like there. The Lord brings Philip, he comes upon him and he explains the scriptures to him. He explains about Jesus to him. And he said, well, what keeps me from being baptized? And Peter or Philip basically said, well, nothing, let's go do it. So they did it. Well, if he'd have gotten down and on his way down to the down to the river, had tripped and broken his neck, would that have meant that his soul went to hell because he didn't get a chance to get baptized? No. No, he was saved through his faith and he was acting out of his faith in his baptism or in his movement toward the baptismal waters. Interestingly, after he's baptized, the Lord takes Philip away. Baptism's not a ritualistic washing. Peter makes that clear here. 
It's not a ritualistic washing for purification. It's the defining act of someone becoming a Christian or someone who has become a Christian. Bobby Jameson says it this way. Baptism is part of how someone becomes a Christian in, like I've said, that it's sort of the the one-two punch. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Sometimes we refer to repentance when we talk about one's salvation. Sometimes we refer to... uh, Profession. Sometimes we refer to baptism. Sometimes we refer to uh, faith. All of these words can be taken to respond to the whole. You ever described a car by just re- referring to one part of it? Right? If you saw a car and you like the rims on that car and you're saying, man, those are sweet rims. I'm telling you something, if that, if a piece of junk was driving down the road and happened to have those rims, you would not say, man, look at those rims. You'd be like, how did those rims make it onto that thing? When we affirm one piece of a whole, we're affirming the whole. And often we talk about our faith as, as repentance and faith or faith or a profession or baptism. And it ought to remind us of the whole that we celebrate in this. In the rest of Acts, we read over and over again, people being accepting the gospel or or, or accepting the message and immediately uh, being baptized there. One of my favorite passages is is Acts 2.38. Peter uh, preaches this this rousing message, the same Peter that writes 1 Peter. He preaches this rousing but incredibly convicting message and says, and they say, they're cut to the heart, Scripture says. They're convicted of their sin. They hear the message. They understand the message. They believe the message. And they're convinced in their soul, I need to repent and follow Jesus. And they say, what do we do? What do we do to be saved? Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized, what he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the, this is the New Testament call. And all the evidence that we have points to this, that after trusting Christ, baptism is the first natural step at the earliest possibility to be faith. Bobby Jameson continues, it shows how faith goes public. Baptism shows where it or is where faith goes public. I'm going to give you a definition of baptism. It's a little bit long and, and clunky. That's how you know it's mine, but um, borrowing from others to be sure. But baptism is a public uh, act of joy-filled obedience by a professing believer in the presence of Christian witnesses, the church, whereby a Christian gives testimony of his or her faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, which is belief and confessing. Here she's immersed in water, giving testimony. Uh, by the way, just, let me just I don't have time to elaborate this all, but... The word baptism is what we would call a, a transliteration. It means where we, it's like with the word amen. It's like where we take a Bible word and rather than translating it, we just keep the sound of that Greek word, which would be baptismos, or depending on the form of the word you're using, and we transliterate it into baptism. It just, it's the Greek word brought into our language in a sound that uh, sounds very much like the original language word. It would have been much clearer, and I think the debate, debates among Christian circles would be much clearer if we just understood that it was immersion, to be immersed. Uh, and, and so that's what the word in their language uh, meant. And so he or she is immersed in water, giving testimony that he renounces his life of sin through repentance, the burial of his old life, 
and being made in, alive in Christ through faith is now raised or empowered to live according to the new life of obedient faith with great joy. So I want to I want to ask you a question. I want to give you an invitation. And I want to pause because I need a drink. A lot of people in this room. It'd be very easy to neglect or overlook the reality that God, through his spirit, is speaking to each individual person in this room, not just the whole. So as an individual, I want to give you an invitation if this applies to you. If you have previously repented of your sin and you believe that Jesus in his perfect life and death on the cross completely stood in place in, in, in your place as he took your sin on himself so that believing in him, you might have everlasting life and you're resting in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead to enable you to live a godly life. But have not shown that through baptism, believer's baptism by immersion. I want to invite you to do that today. We have seven in a few moments here who are going to be baptized as a testimony of their faith. But maybe that's you today and you have not followed the Lord in joy-filled obedience for baptism. I want to invite you to do that today. Well, we can think of a multitude of reasons. And if the Lord is working on your heart to do it now, you may be dealing with them in your own heart, in the quietness of your own mind. I want to invite you to... During our baptisms, our elders, pastors, elders are going to be over there by the kitchen window over there. They'd love nothing more than to hear that you love Jesus and that you've repented of your sins and that you are following him. But they'll talk with you for a moment. And there are times when we're not sure that somebody really understands the gospel. And what we don't want to do is help someone with a false understanding of their faith, kind of affirm them in that. So, you know, they may say, you know what, thanks for coming over here. Let's, talk, let's have another conversation, and then maybe we'll talk about this again. But they may say, oh, I affirm what you're telling me about your faith in Jesus Christ, and we would love to see you be baptized today. And then they'll send you up to me to, to, to be baptized even today. I didn't bring the right clothes. They're all prepared, and they've got shirts, and they've got towels. We have towels. We have shirts. If you bring faith and obedience, we'll immerse you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit today. You will walk forward, come into the waters, and walk out of the waters as an obedient child of God, having been baptized in the presence of the body of Christ. Parents, if you have younger children, just to exercise wisdom in this and come over to the elders uh, with your kids, you know, when they come over, if that's the case, right? We always want to be sure people really do understand it, but I want to give you that opportunity today. I also want to encourage you not to, just, not to say no because your family's not here. Right? What a wonderful surprise for them to get a phone call and a video that will figure out how to get you of you being baptized and say, today I, 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 I follow the Lord in baptism. Well, I thought you'd been Christian for 30 years. I have. I just, for whatever reason, I've never been baptized. And today I obeyed the Lord and I followed in baptism. You may have legitimate fears of being in front of a group of people. You may have a legitimate fear of water. You may have, there are a number of, you'd be, you would not, you'd be surprised to hear the number of conversations that I've had with people uh, about reasons why they have chosen not to get baptized. And there are some, I want to say legitimate reasons, right? They're never legitimate reasons not to obey the Lord, but I can, I, you know, I can understand, right? 
Stand up in faith, ask the Lord for courage, and walk in obedience. Come to the kitchen area here and and the elders, elders will talk with you. If you have never repented of your sins and you're hearing this message today and you're saying this is different from any other message about the gospel I've ever heard before. Trust me when I tell you it is not the pastor. I'm not preaching a different message. I'm, I'm heralding, I'm proclaiming the message that the Bible clearly teaches. But maybe I'm preaching a different message than you've heard. And you say, I believe that. And I want to be baptized to profess that I believe that. And I am committing my life to following Jesus Christ. Remember, the premise we started with is persecution. So count the cost. If you say, you know, I'll follow Jesus so long as life is easy, you're not a Christian. I'll follow Jesus when life is hard. Be willing to lose my life on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and I'll be glad to open my eyes in glory. We invite you to come, respond in repentance and faith, and follow with that profession in baptism. If you've been baptized before, one of the things I, I have the privilege of doing when I marry people is I, I um, in wedding ceremonies, um, there's a point in the service where we come to the exchange of rings and exchanging of vows. And one of the things that I always open up as an opportunity uh, for those in attendance who are married to do is I invite them as we, as this couple exchanges their vows and their commitment to one another, you may want to join hands with your spouse, even this morning, run your finger across your ring and remind yourself of the commitment that you made to be married to your spouse um, until death do you part. This is a wonderful, wonderful time for this to be a joint act of worship as you remember and reaffirm in the quietness of your heart, your commitment to your spouse. Well, brother and sister, as every person goes down in the waters and comes up out of the waters, this would be a wonderful time for you to affirm that. But you don't have a ring to run your thumb across to remember this. So I just want to invite you, maybe after the service, you want to come up up front. Maybe you just want to dip your hands in the water and say, I remember. I remember I was seven when I first uh, responded to Jesus for salvation. And I remember being baptized shortly thereafter. I was 35 before the first time it was, I had the opportunity to hear the gospel, repent, be saved, and be baptized. Dip your hand in the water and say, I remember. Like a wedding ring, baptism is the sign of the covenant that God has made with his people. And it's the initial oath sign, if you will, to those coming into the body of Christ. So come forward and remember. This morning we get to celebrate with seven who've repented of their sins, who've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and on the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead are affirming before you, before one another, before the Lord, that they are trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins. If you've not done that, we invite you to do just that.